I'm going to speak today on the gift of tongues. Some of you are thinking that should be for Valentine, surely. <laughs> because let's be honest, it's a weird phrase. It's a weird, weird phrase. That was a bit a surprise. It surprised me when I said that. I would actually love it if, as a church, we could use a different phrase. I don't know why on earth the modern translations of the Bible still use this phrase. It is a hangover from antiquated language. Um, it, it should be languages. It should, I understand why in the King James Version it talks about the gift of speaking in tongues because in those days when, when, that is how you'd refer to a language. In our day, you do not refer to a language by using that term. You refer to it as a language. So I think straight away it takes a lot of the strange ideas and mysticism out of the thing. We're talking about the gift of languages. Yeah? All right, okay. Um, I think this particular gift of the Holy Spirit probably uh, causes the most extreme of reactions. For some Christians, it is the gift. It's the one. Yes, I speak in tongues. I now know I'm a Christian. I now know God really loves me. I'm assured of my salvation. And you would get some very extreme teaching on certain circles on this particular gift. Other Christians, they just don't like it. They don't like the idea of it. They don't understand it. Weirds them out. And why on earth does this have to be part of Christianity? Why can't we just get on and talk in a language that we understand? So I thought, well, look, I think I want to speak on it for a morning. Is that okay? Just to give some clarity, what actually is it? What is the point of it? Should every Christian employ this gift? Isn't it just weird? Questions like that we're going to try and answer. Now, here's the thing. I've never been weirded out by it, and here's the reason why. My mum was a Christian. My dad isn't. As a child, we went to a house church, a charismatic house church. The meetings would last about four hours. There would be no preach. You would all sit around in a circle, and if someone felt quickened to say something, then they would. Um, the dancing was extraordinary. <laughs> there was one guy, he would, he would literally cover the length of a sitting room in about three charismatic strides. Um, it was the full, you know, charismatic, let's be quickened by the Spirit. But you know what? They were amazing people. Amazing, godly, wonderful people. Real, beautiful, spirit-filled, filled with the fruit of the Spirit, mums and dads in the Lord. And so for me, I've always been able to hold in my head quite easily that someone might genuinely really love the Lord, be a fantastic, grounded, earthed, rooted person, and yet when quickened by the Spirit, cover the length of a sitting room in three strides, whilst proclaiming the glories of God in unknown languages. For me, that's never been a problem. I recognize for some of you it is. So I'm going to just try and talk you through it and help you just uh, kind of come to terms with this thing. Before I speak on the gift in and of itself, I want to give you the bigger picture, just so you understand where the gifts of the Spirit fit. I want to help you understand salvation history, maybe a term you're not familiar with, you see, the Bible doesn't cover history per se. Obviously, in many ways, it's a historical book. 
covers thousands of years, but really its aim is not to cover general history, but to cover salvation history, to, go, to, to cover really God's plan and purpose of rescue, redemption, and salvation. That's what it's about, which is why there may be certain characters in the Bible who are alive at certain very, very significant moments in history where, where things were happening that we're, we're taught about in our schools, um, as, as key moments, and yet maybe even just a vague reference, if anything, is made to that. And you can think, well, why? The reason why is the purpose of the Bible is primarily to cover salvation history. It's following what God is doing, which is the real story. And these other things that appear so big and so amazing, significant though they are, in the light of God's purposes, actually are very predictable and very, very samey. And it goes like this, empires rise and empires fall basically it. Through that, God is doing and working out an amazing purpose. And throughout salvation history, you have epochs, if you like, um, ages which are marked by certain things. Obviously, we start with perfection in the Garden of Eden, and then Adam and Eve sin. And we really enter a long period, which theologians describe in various different terms. But the, the term I will use would be to describe it really as a period of judgment. It's where Adam and Eve are judged for their sin. It's where Noah's generation except for his direct family, are judged across the whole world by the flood. And it's also a period of law, judgment and law. And particularly you see two um, incidents in history that really help us to highlight and understand the nature of the season of salvation history that we call judgment and law. Judgment, the incident that really helps us to see and highlight and understand that, we looked at the other week, is the situation in the Tower of Babel which we read about whereby God um, commissions Noah's descendants to scatter and fill the earth, a recommissioning from the original one to Adam and Eve. But what they do instead, they gather and they say, no, let's build a city with a huge tower that reaches to heaven and let's make a name for ourselves. And the whole idea there is they're saying, look, we actually don't want to follow God's uh, directive. We would much rather gather together, find safety in numbers and create a reputation for ourselves and gather in a unity that has no reference to God at all. God comes down and judges that particular venture. And the way he does it is this. At this point in earth's history, everyone had the same language. And God comes and judges it by bringing confusion as he, as, as he brings really multiple languages to people in a moment and they suddenly don't understand one another. As a result, can no longer work together and God's purposes come to pass. They're scattered throughout the earth. That is a key incident that really helps to characterize and mark and help us to understand the judgment epoch in God's salvation history. It's about people trying to do their own thing and God saying, no, I will not allow you to do that because it will rob me of my glory and rob you of what is actually best for you and what you were created for. And so God judges it. And then in law, perhaps one of the most significant moments there to help us understand law would be when Moses, under God's leading, had led the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And then God appears on Mount Sinai and really we're introduced to the law, the Ten Commandments, but obviously there's many other laws as well. And really during that season, what we find is this. We find Moses is a friend of God. The Israelites who are God's people actually are afraid of God and don't want intimate involvement with him because of his holiness and their sinfulness. So they say to Moses, you talk to God and then come back and tell us what he says. Only don't let him talk to us directly because we're scared of him. 
So really, Moses does that, and he gets the law from the Lord and other commandments, and then he will come down, and he instructs the people, and the people say, yes, we will follow these laws, we will serve this God, and it's an agreement, a covenant that is established and agreed upon. Very soon after that, Moses ascends up the mountain again to spend some time with God in a prolonged fast. At this point, the people of Israel uh, rebel straight away. They go to Aaron, who's Moses number two, if you like, his deputy, and they say, look, we don't know what's happened to this Moses character. He's been gone for days, weeks. Why don't we just create for ourselves a God of our own? And we can then not worry about Moses and his God because it's all a little bit unpredictable. We don't, he does not really fit into our schedule. Let's create a God for ourselves and then that God can lead us in to the promised land and we can give that God the glory for uh, rescuing us from Israel. So, they, so Aaron um, unwisely agrees, says, okay, give us all your bits of gold and that. So, they, so um, they, Aaron, from that gold, melts it in fashions of golden calf, as Matt referred to what they're teaching the kids today, and the Israelites begin to worship that golden calf. Change scene up to the mountain where Moses is still before the Lord after, I think, he's fasting something like 40 days. And God says, you need to go down and you need to deal with those people because they are obstinate, they are stiff-necked, they are stubborn, they are rebellious. They have turned against me in this short while you've been up here seeking me on their behalf. Moses comes down and he finds them not only worshipping the golden calf, but engaging in sexual immorality. Idolatry always leads to immorality of some sort. And so there's a judgment whereby Moses calls those, those of you who love the Lord, come to me. The Levites come to him, um, that priest, priestly tribe, and, he, and, and Moses says, execute the judgment of God. 3,000 are killed in a moment. And really what, we're, what we see there is this, is that, is that under the law, we are not able, under the Ten Commandments, as wonderful and beautiful and perfect as they are, all they do because of our corruption and our sinfulness, they simply provoke us to want to sin. It's like the keep off the grass sign, Okay. There's the rule, great rule, okay? Keep off the grass, it will grow. It's a good rule, okay? What do you want to do when you see it? You just, just a little, just a little toe on there. It's not going to harm anyone. It provokes, it provokes the desire to break the thing. Or you think, why not? Or why shouldn't I? Or who are you to tell me not to go on the grass? And it provokes this, what is that? Well, that's sin and Really, it's a light-hearted illustration of what happens when, in a very earnest sense, God's laws come to us. Do not commit adultery. Well, why not? Or, or, well, that's an idea. Yeah, it tends to provoke sin more than anything else, not because there's anything wrong with the law, but because there's a lot wrong with us. And it's a picture of what happens under the law. Really, we just get provoked to sin even more. Why? Because that then highlights to us our corruption and our need of a saviour and that we can't do it ourselves. Enter the next epoch of salvation history, Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to live on our behalf, to live the kind of life we could never live. He lives perfectly obedient and submitted to the will of the Father. He fulfills the law perfectly in every way, not just in action, but in thought, in motive of the heart. He perfectly lives out the kind of life we should live, but don't, on our behalf. That's the key sentence. Not just so that we can look and say, that's amazing, I'm going to try and do that. That's not the point. He does it on our behalf. So we can say, phew, thanks. <laughs> yeah, amen. Amen. If it's not that, if it's, look, I've done it. Now, come on, you guys. Some people get inspired about that. Oh, Jesus, such an inspiration. 
I've used this illustration before. I'll use it again because I think it works. It's a bit like Usain Bolt. He's an inspiration to watch until he turns to me and says, now come on, you do that. At that point, I feel very discouraged. Yeah, why? Because it's not going to look the same when I do it. (laughs) Do you understand what I'm saying? It's going to be a very different thing. On paper, it's the same as a 100-meter sprint. When you get to the reality of what the thing looks like, it's totally different. And, uh, and it's like that with Jesus. You know, he, well, it's not like that with Jesus. He doesn't do that and then say, now, come on, what's the matter with you? Now, now you know what to do, now do it. He says, I'll do this for you. And the righteousness before the Father that is given to me as a result of my life, I give to you as a gift. Isn't it staggering? He then goes to the cross and experiences the judgment we deserve. So the only man to not deserve judgment and curse and death goes to judgment, curse and death in our place on our behalf again. So that that judgment that is hovering over us, waiting to strike, the wrath of God, who is a just God, must punish sin, that is waiting over us. Actually, he takes it in his own body on the cross, sins past, present and future. And so the sins of the world go on him. And so just like his righteousness comes to us, our sinfulness goes to him. It's a substitutionary atonement. It's a swap. He takes our place. We take his. He gets our curse. We get his blessing all as a gift. This is what Jesus does. This is the work of Christ. This is why we worship him. Because his work is amazing. And his work is for us. And we stand right before God now and forgiven because of his work for us. He then rises from the dead because death can't hold him, because death only has power through sin. And all the sin was on Jesus on the cross. None of it was his own. And so once he dies and he's judged for that sin, no longer death cannot keep him. He rises from the dead and ascends to heaven. At that point, he then pours out the Spirit. Enter the next epoch, the age of the Spirit, or the age of the church. This is the age that we live in now, and it's the age between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' second coming. When Jesus returns again, that will be the consummation of the kingdom. When the whole thing comes together, when Satan is finally dealt with, when there's a brand new heavens and a brand new earth, where there will be no more tears, no more sadness, no more crying, no more sickness, no more death, and we live on the brand, in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus forever, seeing him face to face. Hallelujah. Okay? So there's a little brief description of salvation history. Now, back to the age we live in. is the age of the Spirit or the age of the church, which is between Jesus' first coming and second coming. What's it to be marked by? It's to be marked, if we look in Acts 2, by this kind of stuff. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire. Interesting, the same word there for tongues is exactly the same word as of languages. As of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages or tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, I'm not sure if it is the sound of the mighty wind or the languages. It could have been, could have been both. Um, they, at the sound, they came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia. Pontus and Asia, 
Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are drunk. They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 a.m. or the third hour of the day. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall I prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's an age marked by the supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit on people. That is the age we live in, brothers and sisters. It is the age of the Spirit. It is the age of the outpoured Spirit. In those days, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now notice as Peter's speaking about this, he ends by going to the the description, which is from Joel 2. It's a fulfillment of a prophecy from Joel. He goes on to the real end time stuff. The sun be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes. And you think, man, what's going on here? Here's what Peter's saying. He's saying this age, which has been ushered in today on the day of Pentecost, is the age that will last until the return of Christ and the consummation of all things. What that is teaching is this. Over this age, which will culminate in all kinds of signs and wonders before the final end, the whole age from Jesus' ascension through to that age is to be marked by prophetic utterances, by dreams, by visions, by the marks of the Holy Spirit in supernatural ways. That is massive. Because you may be from a church background which would teach you actually know those things have stopped. There is absolutely no biblical precedent to teach that or to believe that. Other than, uh, I would say, a disposition which is uh, anti-supernatural. Or very bad experience and extremes of these things which have caused people to think, blow this, it's much safer just to read my Bible, don't like all that supernatural stuff. We live in the age of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, and it is an age of wonderful favor from God. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 says this, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What a wonderful thing. We live in the day of favor. We live in the day of salvation. That's the age that you and I live in. It's not perfect by any means because the kingdom has been inaugurated in Christ, but it's not been consummated. The devil is still on the loose. He's still doing what he does. Absolutely. There's still sin in the world. I know all of that. There's much opposition. I'm not preaching something triumphalistic, perfect life in this age. No, 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 no. But I am preaching the grace and favor of God. Absolutely. God is favorably disposed to his people. God is about saving. God is about winning people to himself in this age that we live in. And God is about equipping his people powerfully in the Holy Spirit with amazing gifts. That is absolutely what I am preaching. Now, this phenomenon of speaking in other languages is only really mentioned in three blocks of New Testament Scripture. The first is Mark 16, where Jesus says these signs will accompany those who believe. And he speaks about casting out demons, laying hands on the sick and they'll recover, drinking deadly poison and not being harmed, handling snakes and not being hurt, and speaking in other languages. 
It's just it's really quite brief. There's no explanation of it. Then we have the Acts 2 passage that I've just read here, and other short references in the book of Acts when people are filled with receive the Spirit. In the book of Acts, if you follow it through, in that moment they receive the Spirit, they either speak in tongues or prophesy. There is always a manifestation of some spiritual gift, speaking in other languages or prophesying. Okay? And then, but the big teaching, if you like, on the subject is found in 1 Corinthians 12 through to chapter 14, which is where we're going to bed down today. But I will just say this quickly. It seems like the manifestation of the gift of other languages in Acts 2 is slightly different from what Paul speaks about in Corinthians. It seems like a slightly different thing. And there's no explanation for the Bible in, 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 in any sense of how or what, but it seems like they accomplish different things in both settings. So in the book of Acts 2, it's much more, I think, this. It's much more about God saying a new epoch has begun, contrasting with Babel. Okay, So Babel, the languages are confused, and it's the God's curse because they were trying to gather together without him. In Acts, they've gathered together in the upper room under Christ, and the language's gift is given again, but it's understood because it's God's blessing. Okay? Also, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preaches, how many are saved? When they made the golden calf and Moses came down the mountain, how many were killed? Right, so it's the exact opposite of that again, saying it's no longer the age of law, it's the age of grace. Okay, so it's a very significant epoch moment that you see that. It's not just incidental. God is saying it's a new epoch, one of grace and favor. These people who killed Jesus, some of them in the crowd, who actually shouted out uh, six weeks before, crucify him, are being saved today instead of being killed with a sword. Yeah, you understand? It's grace, it's favor, it's undeserved. It's not that God has somehow become nicer or softer or anything of the sort. It's what it is, is this, is that God's favor is fully seen in the work of Jesus Christ. And God is fully able to express his his undeserved favor in our lives. Why? Because of what happened at the cross. The judgment was so full on and so much worse than 3,000 Israelites being killed in the, in the desert. What happened there was so terrible that Jesus has so fully satisfied the wrath of God that the Father was able to give out grace like that. Not just on the day of Pentecost, but right through to Christ returns again. Okay, so just so you understand that's what's going on here. Then we get to 1 Corinthians 12. A few words on Corinthians. They were what we would describe as probably the most charismatic church in the New Testament in the sense that they loved the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They had understood they lived in the age of the Spirit. They had understood these gifts are gifts, they're not rewards. Anyone can have these gifts. It's not based on maturity. It's not based on, repent, uh, um, it's not based on performance. It's based on the fact that I'm in Jesus Christ and these are gifts for me. As a result, they excelled in the gifts. Where they didn't excel was every other area of the Christian life. <laughs> they were immature. They were squabblers. There was rife sexual immorality among them. It was in a bad way. And so what I'm interested to find out is this. How does Paul respond to this? How would you respond to this? You're Paul. You're looking after the church in Corinth. This is what they're like. How would you respond? I know what, here's what I would do. I would say, guys, you've got to stop all this gift stuff. Right? Because you've really missed it. And the way you're going on, you're just bringing such discredit on the name of the Lord through the way you're living. Stop the gifts. Concentrate on these other things. I would have got my hose out, spiritually speaking, put it on cold. I'm going, shh. I would have sprayed cold water all over this tongue speaking, prophesying. Stop. It's immature. Deal with the other things first. Get your marriages in order, you know. What does Paul do? 
1 Corinthians 12. Let's have a look. Let's just work through some of these scriptures together. It's very, very instructive and very, very insightful and helpful. Because many people react negatively to the gift because of bad experience or it's, you know, they've seen it and it's been ugly and they're like, man, just, no, no, no. How does Paul respond? Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Okay? I'm preaching on this today because I do not want you guys to be uninformed and just led about by your personal preferences, or, well, you know, you just don't like that sort of stuff, or I'm a very logical person, and this speaking other languages thing just doesn't fit my framework. So, no, I'm not going to, I want you to be informed. I want you to be instructed. This is what Paul does. He says, look, we're not going to stop it. I want you to just understand how it best works. And then let's, let, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole three chapters. That would probably be a little bit laborious, but we will just pick out chunks. But please, in your own time, do work through it. Let's go to verse 7, shall we? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of languages. To another, the interpretation of languages. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Just some things to pull out there. We don't all have the same gifts. I think the charismatic and Pentecostal church historically has emphasized the gift of tongues, the gift of languages, and as a result has alienated all of those who don't have that gift. Paul teaches here, one has this gift, one has that gift, all by the same spirit. Okay? So the big deal isn't whether you have that particular gift, it's that you are walking in and employing the gift the spirit has given you, or the gifts that the spirit has given you. So it's just, a, just laying a little bit of a foundation here for your understanding. And then if we go to chapter, uh, verse 27, Paul says this, now you're the body of Christ and individually you're members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of languages. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, to all speak with languages, to all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, what he's saying is this is interesting here. He, he, this list is in order. He says first, second. And where does he put the gift of languages? Second to last, and what comes last? Interpretation, it's twin gift. He's saying if you want to scale this thing, if you want to order this thing, Okay, it's not the most important gift by a long way. Now, the context is Paul is speaking into the public life of the church and their order specifically. He's speaking about when they gather together, particularly in this passage here. So he's saying, particularly when you gather, this gift is not a big deal. There are much other gifts. There are, there are, there are many more gifts that are a much bigger deal and will benefit one another much more when you gather, other than the gift of speaking in different languages and interpreting them. Okay? Very important. Again, there we go. Then we get on to the famous 1 Corinthians 13, which is deliberately sandwiched between 12 and 14, which are both on the spiritual gifts. Paul sandwiches right in between there what we call chapter 13, which is his passage on love. And he says this, verse 1, If I speak in the languages of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Pause, just to say this. In answering your question, what is the gift of languages? I believe, from this passage here, it can either be a foreign language of the earth that you haven't learned or an angelic language. 
it's, he mentions it by the by, in passing here, but I think that that gives us permission to believe that the gift of languages can either be an earthly language that you haven't learned or an angelic language, okay? But anyway, he says this, if I speak in either but without love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so I can even move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. So love's the big deal. Amen? Love is the big deal. I would much rather have someone who really had grasped the love thing, but were unsure on the gifts of the Spirit, and you can walk them through that, rather than the most multicolored, te- you know, multi-talented, spiritually gifted guru you could imagine, who really did not know about Christian love. I would, um, if they weren't willing to learn about Christian love, I would thank them for their multi-talents and their gifts and their amazing technicolor cloak, and I would turn them around and point them to a different church, um, hopefully a long way from here, because love is the big deal, okay? It's all about love. Verse 8, let's carry on. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for languages, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Now, many people will say this passage is saying that the gift of prophecy and the gift of languages has ceased. Why? Well, it says here they will cease. Yes, they will cease. But what's the passage referring to? It's referring to when Christ returns. Now we see in a mirror dimly. In those days, mirrors weren't very good. So you could, it wasn't like mirrors today. So you'd, oh, okay, you'd be able to get a little bit of a view, but it was dim. That's how we see the Lord now. Then, face to face. Any of you, do any of you, I just want to, any of you see Jesus face to face at the moment? It's not referring to this age. It's referring to when he returns. Revelation 22 is clear. Then in the new heavens and the new earth, we will see him face to face. It's talking about then. That's when the gifts of the Spirit cease. That hasn't happened yet. (laughs) So the gifts of the Spirit are for now. Just a very, very important point there. Okay? So now we're going to get on to chapter 14. Are you still with me? Is it too warm in here? (laughs) It's always always a tricky question to ask. Okay. If it is two women here, then roll your sleeves up. Okay. So, chapter 14. Here we go now. Let's read 1 and 2. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a language, or in a foreign language, in a tongue, speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. No one understands him. That's why I'm saying it's different from Acts 2. He's talking about the gift of tongues, the gift of languages now, a prayer language given by the Lord for uttering mysteries in the Spirit. uh, You don't know what you're saying when you pray in tongues, when you pray in languages. You don't know what you're saying in that sense. You're uttering mysteries. Now, if you have the gift of interpretation or someone else is around who does have the gift of interpretation and you're going to bring that message in another language publicly and the interpretation comes, then supernaturally there's a revelation of what it meant. But when you are just praying in that prayer language given to you by the Lord, you don't know what you're praying. 
And I'll enforce it as we go through this passage and show you some other things that Paul says. But it's important to understand that. Okay? Also this, it's, a, it's, it's us speaking to God. So it's not prophesying. It doesn't seem like Paul's saying, when you speak out in a tongue, it's God speaking to the people. No, he utters mysteries to God. It's, it's Godward from us. It goes in that direction rather than in that direction. Does that make sense? Which is why when someone brings a public uh, message in another language by the Holy Spirit and we wait for the interpretation at that point, we're not looking for someone to say, and God says, no, because the Bible says here that it's to, speaking in mysteries to God. So we're looking so the interpretation will be a prayer. It will be something aimed upward from the person's spirit. Okay? That's just to help you. That's why if a prophet, if sometimes we've had it where a, a tongue has been brought and then a prophecy has come. Now, at that point, the prophecy is not necessarily wrong. In fact, it's usually right. But it's not the interpretation. So we say, look, we're going to hold on to that prophetic thing there and we'll respond to that in a moment, but we're going to wait for the interpretation. Now, why does that person prophesy when that person speaks in a tongue? Here's why. Often it's because they've never been instructed in these things. But what happens is when someone just breaks out by the Spirit's leading in a tongue, you'll tend to find those others that are just bubbling away with gifts of the Spirit will just get quickened. And they'll be like, whoa, you know, and they'll want to think, oh, yeah, whoa, I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm quickened by the Spirit. Yeah? And they bring the thing. And it's totally of God and totally right. But the timing's just out. It should have come after the interpretation. Does that make sense? So it's just, just as long as we, I don't want you to be uninformed. This is how it works. This is, this is how it ought to work. So we wait for the interpretation. Okay. Um, verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Okay? So, if I, so he's talking about church gathering here. So we've gathered together. If you're stood next to me, we're praising the Lord, and I'm just going for it in tongues, okay, it's not helping you. Why? Because you can't understand what I'm saying. Also, if I'm loud as well, it's even harder, isn't it? Thinking from Oh, and another one the other side. Great. You know, it can be like that sometimes. So we want to honor the fact when we're together that primarily we should be coming looking to prophesy. Why? Because primarily I don't come to church, what am I going to get? Primarily I come to church, I want to build up the body. It's not, okay, what are you going to do then? Okay, I'll give you a mark out of 10. No, I'm coming to church to serve you. And you're coming to church to serve. The, we come to serve one another. The Bible teaches it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so we come with that attitude of saying, I'm coming to build up the body. So I want to prophesy. Because when I prophesy in a native language that you'll all understand, then your spirit will go, oh, that's done with the world again. I really needed to hear that. The body gets built up in love. You see? It's a beautiful. This is the way that God has designed it. This is why. This is why we've got to see this stuff restored more and more to the church. It's beautiful when it works like this. Verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in languages. But even more, to prophesy. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I want you all to speak in languages. Now, to me, that, 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 that gives me a sense of confidence in this, from the point of view that if you want to speak in other languages, I believe God will give you that gift. I believe very often, when you have a certain desire for a certain spiritual gift, that is enough for me in terms of an indicator that that is one of the gifts the Lord wants to give you. There's no shortage in heaven. And I think sometimes, especially those of us that are English, you know, where we're just always culturally so satisfied, we're just, that's fine, that'll do me, that's great. We're like that, aren't we? We're polite, culturally, we're polite. No, it's fine, no, really, no, 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 you know. I was taught as a child to say no to anything I was offered, do you know that? It's only after, I thought, this is really weird, after a few years, I thought, everyone's got loads of sweets and stuff around them, I've got nothing. Thought, Why is that? Oh, it's because I said no. Well, that makes sense, you know. But I was brought up with this kind of attitude, no, I'll be fine, that's no, fine, no, really, really. And you get to fights about, no, 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 you know. And it's like, hold on a minute. 
That is not the right attitude when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. Paul says, I'd love you all to pray in tongues. This is the guy speaking to the church that praying in tongues too much. He's not got his hose out, has he? He's saying these are great gifts. Just use them well and be informed. Just don't be ignorant, okay? So I want you all to be, but even more, to prophesy. Why? Because it's for others. So speaking in tongues, build yourself up. I'll say that again. Building in other, praying in other languages, build yourself up. So here's what I'm saying. If you are in a situation and you do not know what to do about it and you don't know how to pray about it, but you have the gift of other languages, I would say to you, go and walk around the block for 15 minutes praying in that language. You will build yourself up. You will come back more edified. Will you have any idea what you said to the Lord? No. Get over it. Okay? You need to be built up. It's ever so important. Build yourself up. Which is why I would say as well, don't just do that thing which some people do have got that gift. Of they, they pray in English and then they sort of whisper in tongues for five seconds at the end. Now that's okay. It's not naughty. But it strikes me as a somewhat dulled down version of the gift. Use the gift. Say, so I'm going to spend some time just praying in other languages now. You will often find that after some time, you, you just kick in. I don't know how else to describe it other than that. Sorry for the, sorry for the touchy-feely term. You just kick in. You're like, oh. So very often when I start, I'm praying in other languages. I, you know, I'm like the rest of you. I'm walking around thinking, what on earth am I doing? <laughs> I've got a to-do list as long as my arm, and I'm walking around my bedroom praying what I don't, something I don't understand. And you just think, I'm going to just dig my heels in and crack on. And then at some point, you just find suddenly in a very tangible way, the Spirit of God comes on you. And you're still praying other languages, and you still don't understand what you're saying, but you know you are landing some serious right hooks into the situation. You just know in the Spirit. Yeah? You can't explain it. You know in God we are doing some business at this point. If all you ever do is pray a few words in another language at the end of a prayer when you've finished then you never come into that. I would encourage you, no, come into that. Okay, let's go on to now, verse, done, verse 5 and 6. Let's look at verse 13 and 14. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. Now, obviously, Paul's speaking about the building up of the church. When you come to, in the public setting, if you're going to pray and speak in another language, pray, God, help me to interpret this so we can build other people up. Then he says this, For if I pray in a tongue, in a language, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Now, you understand, Paul is making a differentiation here between praying with the mind, singing with the mind, praying with the spirit, singing with the spirit. What's he saying? He's saying this. He's saying that when you pray in your native language, you're engaging your brain and you're thinking through the request you're bringing to God and what you're saying to him. You're thinking it through. Your mind is engaged. You know what you're asking God for. That is great, and you must do that. My concern is, is that praying with the spirit would often be neglected because it's not understood, and we're from a very intellectual culture. We don't understand it. We don't value it. Listen, Paul says, pray with your mind, but also pray with your spirit. By using those terms, he, to my mind, is making it abundantly clear that when you pray with your spirit, your mind does not know what you're praying. Again, roll with it. It's fine. It is the Holy Spirit. I would just say this as well. If you're from a particularly Pentecostal background, you might say, how do I know it's not a demon? Because you've been taught demons are basically everywhere. Yeah. Listen. The Bible says, Jesus says, Matthew 7, Luke 11, your heavenly Father 
knows how to give good gifts to those who ask. I don't think you've come to find and say, Father, I'd really love the Holy Spirit. I don't think at that point the devil has the authority to kind of bypass that and stick an evil spirit on you. And that is totally crazy. It's outlandish. It is ridiculous. It goes against the whole teaching of Scripture. Satan can do nothing without the permission of the Father. His parameters are clearly set. You see it all the way through. You come to the Father. You ask for the Spirit. You ask for gifts. The Father's going to give you those gifts. Amen? It really is as simple as that. It really is as simple as that. Okay. So, where were we? Okay. Now, we're getting close to the end. I know this is kind of piecemeal, but I hope it's helpful and instructive because I, I think I just want you guys to understand about this gift. Let's go on to verse 13 now, shall we? Oh, we've, we've done that. Sorry. Okay. Um, we'll now go to verse 18. I love this. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Is the Apostle Paul. Any of you want to be like the Apostle Paul? He says to the Corinthians. He's not speaking to the Ephesians. He's speaking to the Corinthians. They speak in tongues about 23 hours a day. He says to them, I speak in tongues more than you. He's, Paul is charismatic. But, verse 19, nevertheless, in church, when I'm with the brothers and the sisters, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 in another language. Okay? Very important. So I love praying in tongues. I love praying with my spirit. When I'm with the brothers and the sisters, I want to speak some words that are going to do you good. That's, this is it. It's so, it. Doesn't it make sense? And you think to yourself, if only the church has just read this and applied it, these gifts would be so helpful, wouldn't they? And people wouldn't run out screaming of churches because someone came up to them and started banging them on the head whilst praying in tongues and stuff. You think, why do it? Why are you doing that? The Bible says don't. Huh? Do you know what I mean? Just do what the Bible says. I think if you do what the Bible says, you will be wonderfully charismatic but in a way that is for the glory of God and the upbuilding of the church. So, in conclusion, the gift of praying in other languages is a great help privately. It's a great help. Romans 8.26 says, We do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And one of the ways the Spirit helps us in our weakness is that He gives us this gift whereby but we can pray in the Spirit. And here's the thing I love more than anything, perhaps. When I'm praying in the Spirit, the Spirit of God is praying through my spirit. I am, no, I am praying according to the will of God. Is there any way I could pray, is there any way the Holy Spirit could pray through my spirit back to the Father outside of the will of God? There's no way. So when you're praying and you think, I don't know what I'm saying and I've got to do this as long as my arm, what's going to keep you in that place? I know that I'm praying according to the will of God. Therefore, I know that these things I'm interceding for are going to work out for the glory of God and for the forwarding of his purposes. Very, very important. The gift of other languages is wonderful publicly when brought with an interpretation. Okay? It's great. It's great. It may not be the most functional thing in the world, well, like, why did we have to have that bit first? Why can't we just have the interpretation? I don't know, <laughs> to be fair. And I'm sure there's some gaps in my thinking on all this stuff. But the stuff I do know, I'm pretty clear on. What I do know, when you're somewhere, though, and, and, and there's just this eruption of the Spirit, and there's just this bursting out of this, oh, you know, this wonderful praise and prayer, 
in a language, supernatural language, unlearned, followed by a glorious interpretation of that same prayer, either by the person who brought the, 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 the tongue or by someone else at the, the other side of the room. I know that in the body, everyone's spirit lifts. You go, oh man, God's with us. And it's one of the, those amazing manifestations of the Holy Spirit. So there, it's a good thing. And I will just say this to finish. Don't despise the gift either due to abuse. If you've been in a setting where it's been abused, look at Paul's response. He doesn't back off. He doesn't close it down. He doesn't say, blow that. He just says, let's look at this and use the thing well. Don't despise the gift due to intellectualism. The fact that you don't understand it. Let me just break this to you gently. There's a lot of things you don't understand. <laughs> you don't really know how prayer in the mind works, if I'm honest with you. Do you? He's sovereign. <laughs> and yet it works. And prayer is very, very powerful in a real way. We don't understand how that works. But don't despise it because of that. Part of the wonder that we're caught up with God is that we're caught up with one we don't get. But we know him by the Spirit and we can worship him. In it all, as we use the gifts of the Spirit, and there's many other gifts I haven't preached on today, many others. Let's remember the bigger picture. Remember that every time you speak in a language not learnt by yourself, it's a sign you are living in a season of history that is the most glorious and exciting season to live in. You live in the day of favour and the day of salvation. <laughs> remember, let yourself remember, well, I'm in the age of the Spirit. I'm in the age of the church. I live in an age where the kingdom of God has been fully inaugurated and yet not yet fully consummated, but everything to fully consummate it has been done by Jesus. So it's a foregone conclusion that this thing is going to go the full distance. Feed yourself on that glorious picture and, and, and let yourself be inspired by that. Remember that it's God's idea, this gift of other languages, to strengthen and help you and build you up for the fight. Yeah? As we look to take ground for Christ and move forward and advance his kingdom, there is much opposition. Much opposition from the world, the flesh, the devil. We need everything in our armory, don't we, that God's got on offer for us. So that we don't just scrape through, but that we overwhelmingly conquer. Praise God for this gift to help us in every season and with every opposition that we face. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm happy to do five minutes of Q&A, and then we're going to respond in a gloriously charismatic time of worship. Amen? Come on. Right. Okay. Hazel. Yes, yes. How do you know that that's the interpretation of the time? But generally speaking, I would say this. People are so nervous about bringing the interpretation, so nervous, that in order for them to have done it, I think it's basically not just, when, it's not something you do for a good idea. There are certain things in the Christian life you think, I did that because it was just really, I went, you know, I became a youth leader because there's a, there's a, there's a weekend for youth leaders at Centre Parks, for New Frontiers. That makes sense. I get that. Yeah? Centre Parks is brilliant. All right? Bring an interpretation, that's a risky one. Why? Because what if someone else brings interpretation at exactly the same time? That's going to be fun, isn't it? Um, you know, <laughs> and so it's generally a risky business. On that front, I, I would say people usually have been fairly quickened in order to do it. And so normally you just think, do you know what? We'll roll with that, unless it's heretical, of course. They're saying something which is just unbiblical. You have to just step in. But normally I've just rolled with it. I would say very often though, there is a sense of uh, corporate witness. Yeah. <laughs> it's spirit stuff rather than mind stuff. You know, but it's like, yeah. Uh, so that was th that's the best I can probably give you on that. Dean. Yeah. 
That's one way of keeping everyone happy, isn't it? <laughs> it's possible, I guess, I guess, I guess I would say from the, from the plain reading of Scripture, it's much more likely, it actually should be more common that the person who brings the tongue should bring the interpretation. But it seems to suggest that the interpretation is a gift as much as a tongue, in which case they may just have the one gift, therefore they won't, so someone else can. But I think it's more likely that the Spirit, being a God of order, not confusion, would rather than say, well, I'll give the first three quarters of interpretation to that person, and we've got a quarter left. We'll give an eighth to that one, an eighth to that one. I think they would just confuse things. So it's probably more likely that one person would have it. I want to also say this. It's not a translation. It's an interpretation. It's different. Sometimes a, a message in tongues might come for two and a half minutes, followed by a one-minute interpretation. You think, oh, well, different lengths. Different lengths. Now, I know my languages, and that should be similar length. It's more than half the length. You know, no, it's an interpretation. Okay? It's not a word-for-word translation. It's important to realize that. Dan? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I have racked my brains over the last two days to try and make sense of it, and my conclusion was I'm going to leave that out of my sermon because I don't understand it. So basically, I think it's a safe bet to preach in what you understand, and the bits you don't, I'm going to go quiet on for now. Um, it is ambiguous, and I don't understand really what you're saying. I've read commentaries on it, and they seem to be inconsistent as well. So for the, at the moment, I don't know. But what I do know is it's probably, Paul says more clearly, that it, when you're gathered together, it's not a great idea for everyone to just be speaking in other languages that they haven't learned. But if you've done an orderly way, Torsten. Sure. I mean, obviously in Acts 2, you know, they say these guys are declaring the, the works and the wonders of God. Yeah, so they're speaking in tongues and they're declaring the works and the wonders of God. And so I think what I'm saying is I think that generally um, it's a, it seems like what Paul is saying is there's a particular direction. The direction, the direction is upward rather than downward, if that makes, do you want to make it really sort of easy terms? Um, but I guess, you know, when one's praying to God, very often you can just you, it's totally appropriate to burst out and just to begin to declare the wonders and the greatness of God in which kind of can sound prophetic so I, I get that I think I'm just it's not watertight and it's not an exact science but I think what the what it seems to be teaching is is that the thing the direction of it is more that way than that way so I think I'm just more comfortable um so very often, so sometimes I've been places where, the, where a tongue's been brought, and then someone says, and God says, I, I love you, you're my people. And, and I'm just thinking, I don't, th- I don't think that's the dynamic of what was going on there in that tongue. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily declaring the wonders of God. It just sounds like something God particularly wants to say to a group of people at a particular time. So I, I don't think, I mean, come back to me if you... Yes. Very good, very good. I guess what I meant was this, words that are more sourced from God, if that makes sense, rather than a, it's a tricky one. I do get, I get what you're saying, yeah, and um, yeah, you're right. I mean, do you want me to say any more? Okay, cool. Esther. 
Yeah, that's part of that passage that Dan brought that I just don't understand. I mean, if you go back to Isaiah, basically what basically is quoting Isaiah, and the situation is just the God's people are under judgment, and God's and, and so God says, "I'm going to bring a foreign a foreign people along to you." Bringing, bringing, bringing the instruction of God's thing, and that's a curse on them because they shouldn't have to be experiencing that because they're God's people themselves, yeah? So that's kind of the context, and it's, it's quite a difficult thing. But that, then he lumps that in with the quote that Dan said, which, quite frankly, I don't understand. And so for now, you're going to have to give me just grace on that bit because, I, you know, I did, I did rack my brains. I read, and there, there was nothing, no common thread coming through. If anyone particularly wants to do a study on this, can we just read what, what verses are those? Anyone particularly motivated to look into this over the next few weeks? That would be great. Yeah, so basically verses um, 20 to 25. If anyone particularly fancies that for a, a bit of a theological project in the next few weeks, Bob? Great, thanks, Bob. Bob's on it. Bob's on it! And Bob is brainy. All right, okay. Any other questions? Dave? Yeah. <laughs> oh, here's another thing worth saying as well. Some of these gifts are resident gifts. Well, these gifts can be resident gifts. I have this gift. Sometimes a gift comes in the moment, but it's not necessarily you've got that gift. It came in the moment. So my, I guess my level of conviction and faith is, is that if, if God, if you bring a tongue, message in tongues, and then, some, and then God the Holy Spirit gives that interpretation to someone else, but they just refuse to chance it, okay, that then God in his mercy would give you that gift of interpretation for the moment. I would just be confident of that. So that's how I would conduct things if I was anchoring the service. Yeah? Anything else? Some good questions, guys. One more. <laughs> generally speaking if someone brings a tongue I'll just, I'll just sit it out for a bit and then if it feels like it gets to the point where you know it's kind of like it ain't coming I would then just come at the front and encourage and exhort and I'd help people understand see so I say something like this you may at this point when this person's bringing this message so when I was at New Day once it was a huge youth conference we helped to run one of the leaders brought this public tongue from the stage and then, and then another friend of mine he was, about, he was about to get up onto stage. And I said, have you got any interpretation? And he, the answer stuck with me forever. I love it. He looked at me and he said, well, I know what he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's like, great. And it's like, I think sometimes you just think, oh, I, I, I know what that's about. Not word for word, but I know what it, I know what it is. Or sometimes it's like a, even a prayer is actually you find it's just being formed inside you. You feel, oh, I've got the beginnings of a prayer. Not maybe the whole thing, but the beginnings of it. And very often it will come a quickening with it, especially... If you are not used to stepping out in that thing, it's a grace from God almost to say, donk, 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 yes, it's you, you know. Um, so in that sense, I would encourage and just give some instruction. If you're here, maybe a prayer's being formed in your mind or you're feeling quickened, please go for it. If then nothing comes, I'd, I'd say over to you. <laughs> to, to, and we just wait, and I'm sure God will do it. But I'm, I'm more happy to learn together and have those kinds of situations than just not do it. I just think, you know what, let's, let's do the adventure together. You know, and let's not be freaked out if it's a little bit messy. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Has that been helpful? All right. I hope, let's just pray. Make sure we don't.